Well, turn with me as we begin, if you would, to the book of Psalms, and we'll uh, begin in Psalm 19. As you're turning there, you may be familiar with the famous Bible translator from the 1500s, William Tyndale. Uh, At the time, the Bible had not been translated into the common language of the people, so the average person couldn't just open up a copy of God's Word and read it for themselves. So that is what Tyndale set out to do, to translate the New Testament into the language of the people. And it's reported that one evening, Tyndale was eating dinner with a Catholic scholar who said this, uh, kind of some antiquated language, but we were better to be without God's law than the Pope's. We'd rather have the Pope's law than the word of God. And Tyndale responded with these famous words, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Tyndale wanted the commoner, just just the boy who worked on the farm to be able to read the Bible for himself. And though he didn't make it much past 40 years of life, Tyndale did manage to translate the Greek New Testament into English. People read it. Uh, People came to saving faith in Jesus Christ simply by reading the Bible for themselves. And many of them actually paid the price with their lives. Tyndale himself ended up being condemned as a heretic by the Catholic Church for what he had done. He was tied to a stake, strangled by an executioner, and then his body was burned. And we might ask, well, what is it about this book? What is it about our Bibles that would cause someone to die simply to translate it into the common language of the people? And what would cause a person to die for its message? Many people believe that this is just an ordinary book. But the Bible is no ordinary book. It is the Word of God. And I've asked you to turn to Psalm 19. I want to read as we begin our time in God's Word here today with Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11, if you'd like to follow along. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And keeping them, there is great reward." Uh, Last week, we started looking at a few teachings about the Bible. I think I mentioned that we were going to look at five. We're going to look at four. We looked at just one last week. We'll look at three more today. Uh, Last week, we began with this teaching. The Bible teaches the inspiration of Scripture. And simply put, we define inspiration from 2 Timothy 3.16 as the fact that all Scriptures breathed out by God. We talked about something, uh, to use the technical language, we talked about something called verbal plenary inspiration, which basically just means that uh, inspiration extends all the way uh, from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, and it extends all the way down to the very choice of the individual words. All scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, We also noted about that phrase, breathed out by God, that it speaks both to the source and to the value of scripture. God is the source of all scripture. And because of that, all scripture is profitable, it's valuable, and useful to us. And here today, we want to look at three other teachings about the Bible as we continue to develop our understanding of what the Bible teaches about itself. And 
Uh, I, I mentioned last week that for many of you, you'll go, I know this. Uh, I've known this for a long time. These are very simple truths. And I would imagine for many of you that will be the case. And for others of you, you'll go, wow, I've never heard this. I've never even thought about this. Whether this is new to you or whether this is old news, uh, it's nonetheless very, very important. And it should impact how we think about our Bibles and how we relate to them. So teaching number two. The Bible teaches what we might call the inerrancy of Scripture. You can turn with me to the book of John, chapter 17. John 17, simply put, inerrancy is the teaching that the Bible is free from error. And inerrancy answers questions like this. Does the Bible contain truth or does it contain error or is it this mix of both? Is the Bible true in all that it affirms, whether that be doctrine or things like chronology and timelines and history, science, geography, geology, whatever else uh, the Bible is speaking to, is it true in all that it affirms? And yes, we'd say inerrancy is the teaching that the Bible is free from error. Inerrancy means that the Bible tells and speaks truth. To provide a fuller definition of this word inerrancy, one writer states it this way, when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, that's the original manuscripts, uh, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. How do we know that? Because the Bible teaches it. And it it would teach that principle, um, not so much explicitly just repeating that idea again and again, again, but implicitly. When you take uh, two very clear teachings of Scripture and you add them together, what you get is inerrancy. It's basically a three-part equation. Uh, The first part of the equation is that God is true and he speaks truth. The second part of the equation is that the scriptures, as we saw last week, are breathed out by God. And the third part, therefore, the scriptures are true. So let's look at the three parts of this equation together. The first part, God is true and speaks truth. Scripture states this again and again. I've asked you to turn to John 17. Just look at verse 3 with me. John 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, and notice how he's described. The only true God. Very simple statement about the fact that God is true. And then Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, Romans 3, verse 4 says, By no means let God be true, though everyone else is a liar. Men and women may lie, people may lie, but God is always true. Titus 1 verse 2, a very clear text, says in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Uh, God doesn't lie. He's incapable of doing that. God is true and he speaks truth. We could go further though. It's one thing to say that God uh, speaks truth. But God doesn't just speak and state truth. The Bible teaches that God is truth. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. He is truth. So the first part of our equation is that God is true and he speaks truth. The second part of the equation is, as we saw last week, that the scriptures are breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is the product of his mouth. 
Now, if we take those first two parts of the equation and we add them together, we end up with a very simple equation. It's a 1 plus 1 equals 2 sort of thing. God is true and he speaks truth. What happens when you add to that the fact that the scriptures are breathed out with God? It's breathed out by God. Well, what that equals is this, the third part of the equation. Therefore, the scriptures are true. You're in John 17. Uh, look at verse 17. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. And maybe we have to qualify that a, a little bit and should say that the original manuscripts of God's word are free from error. To say that those original documents of the Bible can contain an error is actually to say that God can make a mistake. It's to say that God could breathe out error and he could breathe out falsehood or God could actually tell a lie. Do you realize what's at stake here when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture? It's actually the nature of God and what he's like. And further, if you can't trust the Bible that it speaks truth in, in the everyday matters of life, things like chronology, history, science, why would you trust it? with the biggest and most important and most significant thing of life and things of life, doctrine and the gospel itself. Why would you trust it concerning the way of salvation if it's not even accurate in the other realms? It really is an all or nothing thing. Either this book is without error or it's not and we can't trust it and we don't need it. And perhaps there could be an objection that the human instruments that God used were flawed. You're there in the book of John. Turn to chapter 15, just probably back a couple pages in your Bible, maybe even on the same page. In just a moment, we'll look at verse 6 of John 15. Uh, it, it might be objected that, yes, God is truth. He speaks truth. He cannot lie. But he did use flawed and fallible human instruments in the writing of Scripture, right? Like Paul, Peter, John. These guys, the Old Testament prophets, they were human. They could err. Well, remember, there was a verse that we looked at last week, and uh, you don't need to turn there. I'll, I'll just uh, read this verse for you. It was 2 Peter 1.21, and it talked about how this process played out. It said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but notice what comes next. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were born along. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in John 15, verse 26, where I've asked you to turn, look at that verse and see how the Holy Spirit is described. John 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. Carrying the writers of Scripture along, the Spirit of Truth did not allow error into the Scriptures. I find it interesting, on one occasion, Jesus rebuked the Sadducees with these words in Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong, basically, you error, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. God's Word does not have error in it. Error actually comes when you don't know the scriptures. That's what Jesus said. You err because you don't know the word of God. Error comes from ignorance of the scriptures. They are truth. 
And I think it raises the question, well, what about in in some of these passages, it looks like maybe there are some discrepancies or some things that don't quite line up. And people would point to this, that, or or, or whatever else and go, see, look, there's an error in the Bible. And this text doesn't match up with that one. Or this date doesn't seem to line up with that one. Or whatever the case may be. Uh, There's an appropriate and an inappropriate way to handle those. You don't want to handle those with what we might call strained exegesis or, or, or in, in simple language, crazy theories. <laughs> well, you know, it is just, and you've got this wacky idea to, to explain whatever away. Nor do you want to say that there's no answer just because you don't have it. There, there are answers, and sometimes we don't have those available to us or haven't yet discovered them. But it does seem that again and again, over time, archaeology, linguistics, etc., eventually prove God's word to be true, and it had been all along. Uh, just a, a few examples of that. The Bible mentions some names and places that over the years people have mocked and said, oh yeah, those people didn't exist. That place never existed. People never lived there. For example, the Bible mentions a group of people called the Hittites. You may remember them. From the uh, Old Testament, they were ancient Israel's enemy. In 1906, a man by the name of Hugo Winkler was excavating in Turkey. And everyone was, oh, the Hittites, yeah, they they never existed. That's just some made-up group of people from the Bible. And this man was excavating in Turkey, and he discovered 10,000 clay tablets documenting the history of the Hittites. Uh, Just back in 2008, a book came out. Uh, by Rene Psalm called The Myth of Nazareth. And basically, uh, the premise of the book was uh, uh, Nazareth was not an inhabited town at the time of Jesus. Yeah, it may have existed, but nobody lived there. Well, just one year later, after that book came out, quite ironic, really, in 2009, archaeologists found a small house in Nazareth that dated all the way back to the first century, indicating that, yes, Nazareth was an inhabited town. Archaeological finds every day continue to support the Bible. Um, Even copies of God's Word are continuing to be discovered uh, several decades back, not all that long ago. I think it was the 1940s. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Uh, A shepherd was uh, taking care of his sheep. He threw a rock up into a cave and heard some some crashing, like something had broken. And what had happened, the stone that he threw hit, hit a bunch of clay pots. And went up into that cave and found uh, many, many, many documents of Scripture from years ago. It's amazing how God has preserved His Word and how it proves itself true again and again and again. Through archaeology and all kinds of other things. The Bible teaches the inerrancy of Scripture. And we can look at archaeology, we can look at those different things and go, Well, yeah, when I see it, I'll, I'll know it's true. But the simple matter is... The simple matter of fact is that God says it's true. We don't even need the archaeological facts to know that it's true. I mean, if this guy hasn't discovered all these clay tablets about the Hittites, does that mean it didn't happen? No. God speaks truth and he says truth and his word is without error. A third teaching about the Bible, our second one for today. The Bible teaches the authority of Scripture. Turn back to John chapter 10. And we'll look at verses 34 and 35 here in a moment. John 10, 34 and 35. What's the authority of Scripture? Pretty basic idea. It means that the Bible has the right to command not only what we believe, but also how we live. Belief and action. 
It has the right to tell us what, we, what to believe and how to live our lives. Uh, as the Word of God, the Bible is the final authority on all matters. And it's really simple. When the king speaks, he speaks with authority. This is the teaching, actually, of both Jesus and the prophets. Let me show you several instances proving that Jesus believed and taught the authority of Scripture. Uh, We could begin with Jesus in the wilderness. You remember Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus goes and he spends uh, 40 days in the wilderness. And when Satan set out to tempt Jesus there in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus responded three times the exact same way. Satan says this, he tempts Jesus Christ. And then every time Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it is written. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, it is written. Verse 10, it is written. Every time Satan attacks, Jesus just says authoritatively, it's written in God's word. End of discussion. With each of Satan's attacks, Jesus just keeps saying, it is written. Do you think Jesus believes in the authority of scripture? Absolutely. Uh, we could talk about Jesus on the subject matter of divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees uh, have a question for Jesus about the subject matter of divorce. And Jesus responds actually by making this huge authoritative statement, not just about divorce, but about gender, about marriage, and more, based on what was said in the second chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Listen to how Jesus responded when he was asked about divorce. This is coming from Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. He answered, Have you not read? Read what? Well, he's referring to the scriptures, and he's very specifically referring to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus, just very simple authoritative statement. God's word is spoken. He's quite clear that the Bible is authoritative on gender, the definition of marriage, divorce, and so on. And everybody wants to put all those things up for debate. Jesus just says, um, Genesis 2.24 Authoritatively, God has spoken. We could go to Jesus' interaction with the Jews in John chapter 10, where I've asked you to turn. The Jews were offended, and they're about to stone Jesus because uh, they were saying of Jesus, You make yourself God. So to beat them at their own game, Jesus responded by drawing their attention to something that both he and they both agreed on the authority of Scripture. The Jews believed that. Look at John 10, verses 34 and 35, and let's see what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the Son of God? I I think that's a hard text to jump into and and understand all that's going on. But basically what just happened there, Jesus in his argument quoted 
from the book of Psalms. Psalm 82, verse 6, where God called a certain group of uh, their identities a little bit hard to discern, but they appear to be human beings, perhaps corrupt judges. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 6 calls this particular group of people gods. And he wasn't using that word in, in the divine sense, but recognizing their position. And, but he was using the word gods. In the words of one writer, Jesus' argument moves along in this fashion. The scripture proves that the word God is legitimately used to refer to others other than God himself. If there are others whom God, the author of scripture, can address as God and the sons of the Most High or sons of God, on what biblical basis should anyone object when Jesus says, I'm God's son? They're ready to kill him. We can just note a couple things about this text. Jesus referred to a psalm. As law. Uh, typically, when we think of the Old Testament law, we think of what we call uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, as law, the Old Testament law. But Jesus is calling the Psalms law. And by using that word, he's ascribing legal authority not just to the Pentateuch, but to the entire Old Testament. And further, after quoting from Psalm 82, Jesus says this the scriptures can't be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. What did he mean by that statement? Scripture cannot be annulled. Its authority cannot be denied or set aside. Jesus taught that the scriptures, even obscure ones, like the one that he just pointed the Jews back to, everything, all of scripture, is authoritative. He's saying, look, that the, the word that you're giving me grief over, God used it. And the Old Testament law. And of course, at that point, what do they say? Jesus just beat them at their own argument. We could talk about Jesus as well with the Pharisees. In Mark 7, verse 13, he condemns the Pharisees. And he said, You are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. To make void God's word, to deny its authority, or to place something above it, that authority like human tradition, like the Pharisees were doing, is something that Jesus vehemently condemns. You, you cannot displace the authority of God's word. You cannot put anything else above that. Whether it be tradition or your ideals or your own logics and reasonings, Scripture is authoritative from Genesis to Revelation. When I was in university, I, I, I was struck as I was um, preparing for ministry. A school that I went to, uh, many of the young men preparing for ministry there were required as part of their degree program to take four semesters of Greek. In the first couple semesters, you're just learning the building blocks of the language, your vocabulary, how the language works, and all, all of that. And after you get through those first four semesters, you can go on to take more classes, which are typically just translating through books of the Bible. And I had taken my four semesters just kind of learning the building blocks of the language, and I decided that I would take the easiest class in Greek, which... Uh, was Matthew at the time. The Gospels are pretty easy to translate. A lot of it's just narrative. And you start from chapter 1 and you, you translate through the whole book and as part of my program, you were basically labeling everything about every word and how it was being used, all kinds of things. And, and it's a slow, tedious process. And I remember starting to translate through Matthew's Gospel and I kept noticing the same thing again and again and again. And the benefit of going so slow like that, when, when you're not really great at a language, you're going really, really slow. If you've ever learned a language, you're just, it slows you way down. And so I'm very slowly translating through this book and realize again and again, Jesus keep, just keeps saying, 
It is written. Or it was spoken by. Or have you not read? I mean, just verse after verse after verse, Jesus just keeps pointing back to what at the time? The Old Testament. And if you were to even open up Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and just slowly thumb through each of those pages, what you'd find Jesus say again and again, you almost can't turn to any page in the Gospels without Jesus saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And whatever has been written is authoritative. Jesus taught the authority of Scripture. And so I think an appropriate question would be this, is it authoritative in your life? Um, I think that when I talk about the authority of Scripture, the vast majority of you are going, yeah, I'm already persuaded of that. I don't need persuaded of that. Actually, when you take me to all of these texts, I nod my head and go, yes, I believe that from the time I, I, I first heard about it as a small child. Jesus taught the authority of Scripture. Is it authoritative in your life? When you open up God's word and he speaks to your life and and he says, it is written, this is truth. This is how you should govern and arrange your life. Do you say, yes, Lord? Or do you say, you know what, God, I think I have a better idea. I have a better idea of how to handle conflict with my husband or with my wife. You know, I've got a better idea on child rearing and, and how to discipline them. How to correct them. I've just got different ideas and all kinds of things. Well, either God's word is authoritative or it's not. And what all of us need to do is, is read it and go, well, I don't want to dismiss this. I want to wrestle with this. And I want to go, well, how does this, what does this look like in my life? Is the word of God authoritative in your life as it speaks to your sin, as it speaks to your life practices and the way that you live? The next teaching about the Bible, the Bible teaches what we might call the sufficiency of Scripture. I want you to turn with me back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, We looked at this text last week, part of it. I want to continue looking at it today. 2 Timothy chapter 3 will be in verses 15 to 17 in just a moment. What is meant by the sufficiency of Scripture? It means that the Scriptures are obviously sufficient for something. Sufficient for what? Well, the Bible is enough to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's also enough to guide that person uh, in knowing how to live their life in a godly way, in a holy fashion. In just a moment, we will look at each of those two things. But before we do, I think it's helpful to to explain what the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean. It does not mean that since you have your Bible, you don't need a church. Oh, the Bible's sufficient for me. I'm a Christian, and I have a Bible, so as long as I read it, why would I need need the body? Why would I need a pastor? Why would I need elders? That's not what, (laughs) that is not what the sufficiency of Scripture is referring to. When you open up this book, it highlights the fact that you need the church, that you need the body, that that shepherd have sheep, and, and sheep have shepherds. The Bible teaches that you need the local church and you need elders. It also doesn't mean anything wacky like, oh, well, I've got the Bible, so I don't need doctors anymore. Like the Bible's the answer to my physical problem, all of my physical problems too, and I'm not going to go see a doctor. I'm just going to pray. And No, that's not what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. What is the Bible sufficient for? The Bible is sufficient, first of all, for salvation. Look at verse 15. 
of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to Timothy and and describing his childhood. And he says, And how from, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, He's highlighting how Timothy was so blessed to, all the way from childhood, to to basically be able to have an open Bible, to read the Scriptures, and and to be taught the Scriptures, the Word of God. And then he explains that those Scriptures are able to make you wise to salvation. The Bible clearly teaches the way of salvation. It's interesting, Romans talks about faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, in today's world, a lot of emphasis is placed on apologetics and how we need to defend our faith logically and all these things. And Paul, But Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This book is alive. And it clearly delineates how a person can be right with their creator. And if people will sit in front of this book and they will read it and it will be preached to them, the greatest of things happens when people sit before this book. People trust Christ as their savior. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Simply by reading the Bible or hearing it preached, a person can learn how to be saved and have their sins forgiven. A person can learn about Jesus' identity, that he is God. He's the God-man. And that he died, he sacrificed his life on the cross as a person's substitute to satisfy God's wrath in their place so that peace can be secured between them and their creator if they'll repent and believe Uh, If you've been around our church over the last year, we've had the privilege of listening to some amazing testimonies of how God has saved some of the people sitting right here this morning. I'm thinking of uh, a couple testimonies in particular. I think of one person who uh, we had the privilege of baptizing, and this person stood up and said, I was all alone in the middle of COVID, no transportation. I was just completely stuck, and somebody gave me a Bible. And for a week or two, I was just stuck in this cabin, and I decided to read it. And what happened? Just with a Bible. This person came to saving faith. Another person stood up here and said, yeah, I was really curious about the Bible. So, so I, I checked one out from the Beaumont Library and I took it up with me north uh, as I was working and just thought I would read it from cover to cover. <laughs> and what happened? I trusted Christ. When we talk about the Bible being sufficient, this book is so, so powerful. It's alive, and as it's preached, and as the gospel message is shared, and as people read about Jesus, and and all the way throughout the Bible, it speaks of Christ, and how to be saved, and how to be right with God. The Bible is sufficient for salvation, and it's also sufficient for godly living. Look at verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Uh, Verse 16 mentions four specific things that the Bible is profitable for. It mentions teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Uh, In many ways, uh, I I think those four words represent a four-step process of helping people change. 
And maybe I could simplify it like this. Teaching, that, that first word is basically saying, what's the right road? Okay, here's the road as a Christian you're supposed to walk on. Teaching, what is the right road? Reproof, um, you're on the wrong road. <laughs> the road is here, you're over here. You're, you're, not on, you're not walking on the right path. Reproof. The third word is correction. Okay, you're off the path, here's how you get back on Here's how to get back on the right road. And then the final word, instruction, how to stay on it and keep walking on it. Teaching, reproof, correction, instruction. What's the right road? You're on the wrong road. Here's how to get back on the right one and and walk it. Verse 17 expresses that the intended result of God's word in our lives is that the man of God may be complete or competent, equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know for spiritual maturity and growth can be found in, the, in God's Word. The book you're holding in front of you right now. The Bible contains everything you need to be equipped to perform the work that God calls you to do. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3, we read that God's granted us, He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us all we need. Can I ask you something? That do, you, do you believe that the answers to your struggles and problems are found in this book? I mean, as you think about your marriage, do you think that the answers to that are right here? When you think about your parenting struggles and knowing how to do that well and how to correct and discipline your kids and how to uh, help them grow into mature, godly individuals, do you think the answers are found in this book? Or some of you, you may sit here and you're extremely stressed. You're extremely anxious. You're worried. You're worked up. Do you think that there are answers in this book for how to deal with that? Or perhaps you're depressed or despairing. Or you're in the middle of conflict with others. Or you're wondering how to communicate with someone. Or maybe you just look back at your broken past and all of the garbage with that. And you're still trying to sort through that and process through that and heal from that and move forward. Do you think the answers to, to those things are in this book? Do you believe that the Bible is 100% sufficient to address each of those matters and whatever other matters you may be facing and whatever matters you might face? I do. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't ever need doctors. It doesn't mean that sometimes what's going on in our lives isn't a mixture of physical and spiritual where a, a, a physician could actually be extremely helpful. It doesn't mean that. But as a spiritual being, the Bible is sufficient to address any and every spiritual matter in your life. And just a word on counseling. From time to time, um, someone will ask me if I can recommend a good Christian counselor to them. At which point I always remind people that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian counselor believes in, in what I've just been talking about. The sufficiency of Scripture. And I think it's easy uh, as we have needs or struggles. Oh, this person's a Christian counselor. I should go see them. They can help me. Well, it actually really is probably going to come down to what that person believes. And often what's called Christian counseling is a dangerous mix of the Bible integrated with some kind of psychoanalytic or behavioristic or humanistic worldview. And when those things mix, it becomes extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Don't underestimate, by the way, the ability of God's people to help you. 
If you have Christians who know their Bibles and they know the Word of God, do you think they might be able to help you? I do. In fact, I think some of the, the best counselors out there are probably everyday people just sitting here, right here in this room. And I think one of the greatest things Christians can do when they're struggling is, well, I should go, if there's someone that I respect for their walk with God and I respect for their knowledge of Scripture, one of the greatest things I can do when I'm struggling is actually go to other brothers and sisters in Christ who walk with God and know the Word and say, here's my situation. Here's a window into my life. I'm trying to process through this. What do you think? And let them speak the truth of God's word into your life. Don't underestimate the ability of God's people to help you. That's not to say that there aren't Christian counselors who are really great. And who believe in the sufficiency of God's word. But I think it's a type of thing that you definitely want to do your research on. The Bible teaches the sufficiency of scripture. The scriptures are critical to your spiritual growth. Uh, Just some really practical applications on the sufficiency of scripture. I think we have from this doctrine an encouragement to search our Bible for answers. Uh, to, To constantly be drinking from the word of God and make sure we know it because the answers are there. And it's a massive book full of answers on every page. And so we should be encouraged to continually search God's word for the answers of life. I think with this, there would also be a warning that we don't want to add to Scripture in any way, shape, or form. If this book is sufficient to help a person grow in godliness, we better be very careful not to add to it. And I think we should be warned not to count uh, other guidance guidance, um, equal to Scripture. We don't want to place... Uh, other guidance on par with God's word. It's not. God's word is authoritative. It's sufficient. It's above everything else. I think we should also be warned not to add more requirements than the Bible requires. And which is super easily done and we don't always realize we're doing it. Because we have the word of God and we've got it in front of us written in printed form, but do you know what else you have? You have this thing called your conscience. And what should be happening with your conscience is you want to be always calibrating your conscience to this book and calibrating your conscience so that it lines up with the Word of God. But sometimes it doesn't line up with the Word of God and we don't realize it. And sometimes our our personal standards and convictions and our own conscience uh, go beyond the Word of God. And sometimes they don't go far enough so often, though, our conscience just does not line up with this book. And if we're not careful, you can take your own personal conscience, your own personal convictions, and even view those as authoritative. Imposing those on yourself or your family or other Christians. And it's bad news. We have to be careful not to add more requirements to those named in Scripture. If God sets a boundary here, we're not more spiritual by saying, well, I'm going to make a bigger stronger, taller, higher boundary and say that that's the right standard. That's extremely dangerous. And also I think we should be encouraged to be content with Scripture. Uh, Sometimes, well, I wish God would have said more here. I wish He would have explained the interplay between this and that. And He didn't. But it's sufficient. He's given us everything we need. Where do you turn when you need help, comfort, wisdom, counsel? The Bible is no ordinary book. It's the Word of God. 
And so we should all ask, what am I doing with it? Do I know this book? Am I constantly reading it and enjoying God in the pages of this book? Am I using it to guide and direct my life? I hope you are, by the Lord's grace. Would you bow with me at this time?